1: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
3: All that sitting and swiping, our backs hurt, our eyeballs sting. That's our bodies adapting to our technology. But we can do something about it. We saw amazing effects. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. There's no turning back for me. Make 2024 the year you put your health before your inbox. And take the Body Electric Challenge. Listen to Body Electric from NPR on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look. And I'm obsessed with looking for it.
4: Hi, am Amy, that's Lisa, and we're just two girls that wanna have a conversation with you. Dear 16-year-old Andrea. Hey, gorgeous. Dear younger Lauren. Each episode is stories from people.
2: I would deprive myself, weigh myself obsessively. Because I was eating healthy, I couldn't understand that I had a problem with food.
0: Losing my period scared me the most. My story starts when I was around seven. That's when I started to hate my body. Body image is like our inner picture of our outer self.
1: Healthy behaviors play a much bigger role in our health than the actual number on the scales.
0: Internal dialogue can be so powerful and
3: often it's super negative and critical in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people that we care about.
4: When you start to share your story, that gives other people the courage to share theirs. I know you would be proud now of how far you have come in your relationship to food, exercise, and to
0: yourself.
2: I felt freedom. I've gained relationships. I've found my true sense of self-worth there's one thing i need you to take away from this you're going to be okay Welcome back to Outway. Today we're joined by Victoria Myers. We'll put everything in the show notes, but she's at Victoria Myers underscore. And she's a registered dietitian, founder of Nourishing Minds Nutrition, podcast host, Nourishing Minds Podcast. And she is such a wonderful voice of reason in the space, really navigating difficult topics when it comes to intuitive eating. So my favorite part of your philosophy is that you're helping people let go of unhealthy Obsession with healthy eating. So, we cover orthorexia a lot here, but I think it's so helpful to have an expert, a registered dietitian, come in and say the rigid rules are actually giving you anxiety and stress, and this mindset isn't healthy. So, wellness without obsession, simple to the point. I love it. Yay. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. I am like so excited to be here. And today, we're going to be talking about intuitive eating and IBS. So, we're going to keep it super basic, break it down, and really help. with something very challenging, which is I have a medical condition that requires me to eat a certain way. And so I can't eat intuitively. So that's probably something you hear a lot, right? Yeah. And I think it's complex. I'm
0: sure we're going to get into all of that. But like sometimes you can and sometimes you cannot. It depends on like the root cause
2: of it. We'll we'll get into all this, I'm sure, though. I'm excited to. So let's just go from the top. What is IBS and how is it diagnosed? Okay, so IBS is irritable bowel
0: syndrome. And honestly, usually it's a diagnosis by a gastrointestinal doctor that is a diagnosis of like everything else gets ruled out. And I always say to clients or potential clients, like, that's a good thing. We want celiac disease to get ruled out, we want Crohn's and ulcerative colitis to get ruled out. But a lot of times people get kind of slapped with this diagnosis of IBS, which means you have a certain criteria of symptoms like gas, pain, bloating, diarrhea constipation or alternating diarrhea and constipation. And then a lot of times they just kind of get sent on their way or given medication and not really told what else to do. Another common thing that I see is they're often told to follow a low FODMAP diet, which I'm sure we'll talk about that today too, which is an evidence-based approach to help with IBS. But again, a lot of times people get told to follow that for long-term and they don't get told anything else outside of that. So I think there's just like a lot of confusion around how to navigate and cope with IBS. I will even say from my clinical perspective, a specialized, and orthorexia and disordered eating, so many people that have disordered eating have digestive issues. Those two go hand in hand. So a lot of times people get the diagnosis of IBS, but what if it's because they have disordered eating? And I think there's that like huge part of the conversation that really gets missed and maybe not even at the thought of a GI doctor. They're just not well understanding or maybe not well educated on that particular part of why that person might have digestive issues. But that's basically the basic way you can think of it is the diagnosis where everything else gets ruled out you get told you have IBS and often from there, just told
2: nothing, like just manage your symptoms, basically. So I think you said something super important just to highlight that the disordered eating can cause digestive issues, which then gets labeled as IBS. 100%.
0: A lot of different things can happen to the body whenever you develop disordered eating. But in a really basic way to think of it is if you're not eating enough fuel, your body starts to shut down. And a huge thing, it shuts down because your body doesn't see this as like necessary to survive as your digestion. So it makes sense even from that really basic perspective of why people develop digestive issues. And then even if we add orthorexia to the conversation, y'all know this because y'all talk about orthorexia a ton on your show, but what are people eating when they have orthorexia? super high fiber foods. They're intermittent fasting. They're going, you know, eating all these gluten-free foods, which have all these extracted fiber sources in it. So much things that can cause symptoms. So as you can see, it's already like super complex to say like what specifically causes the symptoms, but it's all definitely interconnected together.
4: Okay. I'm going to come in from the other side as someone who would actually do certain IBS or even Crohn's disease. I do not have Crohn's, but I would, I, this was years ago. Haven't thought about it in a very long time, but I knew someone that had Crohn's and they were reading this book and it was going to help their digestion and follow this diet to a T. I wish for the life of me, I can't think of the name of it, but doesn't matter. But I then went to buy that book because it provided this protocol to have a healthy gut, but I didn't have what she had, but yet I wanted to follow it because I thought it was going to get me thin because then my body would be functioning and I could only allow myself these foods that came from the earth. There wasn't processed things or the added fiber like you're talking about, but I was trying to eat a certain way to fit a certain disease that I did not have. To think back on it, it's so perplexing to me that that was where my brain was. Disordered eating uh, or the orthorexia, I don't think just comes in a form of like following a, you know, South Beach or some diet that's for all. I know that I followed people with certain stomach issues or gastrointestinal issues. Issues and I have tried to follow their meal plan because it was so restrictive. You're
0: making me think of a client I just saw this week that said the same thing, Amy. She was like, You know, I am intermittent fasting and I'm going keto because I follow this person that talks about cancer research and this and that. And it's like, I think that's what happens with the You just keep intaking more and more and more information and you keep adding more and more diets on top of other to the point where you're not eating basically anything at all. And it's like, well, why are we actually doing it? The client, similar to you, Amy, was like, I don't even know. I don't even have any of these things. I just felt like I had to, to have health.
2: Right, well I think the, the chief complaint with digestive disorders that are applicable to all is bloating. And I feel like I could do an entire podcast on my dislike for the way we come at bloating because it's not always bloating and it doesn't always need a solution. But Amy, when you said, you know, you were following people with these digestive things, I'm envisioning you following somebody who's saying, "Here's how you fix your bloat," and then here's the protocol, but her bloat is because she has a digestive disorder and therefore you're on a protocol just because of this one symptom that she is displaying. Does that make sense? Yeah,
4: no, I mean, I think we take on what we're, what we're doing is a disservice to ourselves. I mean, first of all, when we're eating disordered, that's that's a disservice to ourselves. But when we take on somebody else's chronic illness and make it our own, because not I did not think I had what she had, but for whatever reason, I thought, because she was trying to live her healthiest lifestyle to cure herself. I'm using her as a, I'm not even talking about one person Mm -hmm. in particular, Uh, her or him. Because I then started to follow every little move they would make. I thought somehow... I'm a healthier, thinner person saying it out loud. I'm like, how in the world did I ever think that would make sense? Because I was deprived. I was restricting things that I didn't need to restrict because I don't have that chronic illness. <laughs>
0: I think that's the thing with orthorexia though, is most of us have experienced that. I too had orthorexia, which is why I'm so passionate about it. We want to emulate others. I vividly remember following a bajillion influencers and being like, I want to eat like them because I want their lives and their thinness and their this and that and that's why I think orthorexia has gotten so worse over the recent years is because there is this social media aspect of it where you do see these people, even if they do have a chronic health condition, they, you still see it in this like highlight real version of it where you're like, I want that too. And then you develop the same rules that they have. And you have no idea if that person is personally struggling with disorder of eating or not.
4: Well, so let's say someone listening does have IBS or they do have something where they have to restrict certain things for the betterment of their health. That's a fact. Not me over in La La Land just trying to do that to myself because I want to have all these strict rules or wanted to, excuse me, past tense. But what are the IBS restrictions? Like if someone has to be that way, how does that complement intuitive eating and how do people get through that? That is your field. So we're focusing on that today, but correct me if I'm wrong, we could kind of insert like it's an equation. And if you've got another illness, medical, that causes condition. You to, medical condition that causes you to eat a certain way, how do you also do that without creating a disordered pattern? Because you do have to have restriction for your health. Okay. I love this question
0: so much. And I am going to quickly caveat and say real quick, sometimes with disordered eating, when you are recovering, you're going to have some digestive issues initially as your body recovers. So just with that caveat being said, because I do think a lot of times an orthorexic mind can almost use that as a way to manipulate like continuing food rules because you're getting symptoms from eating X, Y, and Z food. Well, that might just be because your body needs to normalize the eating that food. You need to gain weight. You need to eat more consistently. You need the microbiome even. That's what's so cool about like our digestive health. As you eat more foods and you eat a varied diverse diet, you develop the literal bacteria to be able to consume those foods. So anyways, with that side note, I think that's a huge misconception with intuitive eating is that you can't practice it with medical condition. And from my back, I think it just comes from maybe a um, misunderstanding of what intuitive eating is, because intuitive eating isn't just, quote-unquote, eat intuitively or, quote-unquote, listen to your body. It's 10 principles from Evelyn Chivoli and Elise Rice, and it's an evidence-based practice of how we basically eat from a self-care eating framework. They describe it as like actions of self-care, not self-control. So as an example, someone with IBS, let's say they have IBS, and they discover that a low FODMAP diet, which is theoretically only meant to be used for two to six weeks maximum. When I say FODMAP, uh, just to give you guys an idea, these are basically high fiber rich foods that are very specific in causing symptoms with people with IBS. This is evidence based. But again, the diet was really only meant to be used for two to six weeks maximum. And then from there, you can personalize it and individualize it to the foods that you define to be your high trigger foods or the cumulative effect of your personal FODMAPs. Obviously, this sounds pretty nuanced, I'm sure, and that's why it's best to do this kind of work with a dietitian. But just because you have to have certain foods that you're decreasing in your diet, let's say for someone following a low FODMAP diet, they're decreasing hummus or avocados, uh, cherries or chickpeas. Wheat would be another example. Gluten's not one, but wheat is a FODMAP. They just need to avoid certain foods, but still can work on the other principles of intuitive eating. So another example would be someone with with diabetes can still count their carbohydrates if they need to match their insulin needs and still practice intuitive eating. Because you're still rejecting diet mentality, honoring your hunger, making peace with food, challenging the food police, filling your fullness, navigating emotional eating, body respect, joyful movement, gentle nutrition. I think I missed one of the principles, but basically those are the principles. Like you can still practice all of these philosophies and beliefs while you still honor your health. That's the tenth and final principle, and it's such a critical part of this because intuitive eating isn't anti-health or anti-nutrition. It's just not about weight loss as the means to obtain health or saying that then this is the only way to pursue health or weight or that you have to follow like this defined set of rules. Because again, sometimes people need it. Some people need to account their carbohydrates and that doesn't mean they can't do all those other aspects of intuitive eating. And then again, someone with IBS, let's say it's not even FODMAPs. Let's say maybe they do genuinely need to be gluten-free girl, you can still eat intuitively if you eat gluten-free. You just need to eat gluten-free foods. Now, what I usually see is people find gluten-free as an excuse to not eat any carbohydrates at all. The thing I always you know, challenge back to them is like, if you are practicing intuitive eating, you're still eating carbohydrates. You're just eating gluten-free versions of carbohydrates.
2: I'm so proud of you, first of all, just the way you're spewing oh, thank you. <laughs> information so naturally from your heart and from your brain at once. It's just a beautiful fusion and you're just translating it. You just pack so much into just a few minutes of... (laughs) So whoever needs to go back and even like slow that down, there was a lot of good stuff in there. So the protocols that doctors are oftentimes putting their patients on who have IBS, sometimes I've seen that someone may not have a history of an eating disorder or disordered eating, and then they develop one because of the protocol. So, you know, someone who has a history of disordered eating might have a little bit more wherewithal stepping into the space of... Of, okay, this feels a little reminiscent of my disordered days, but do you see that the onset of disordered eating can begin with a protocol?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I will say like digging a little deeper, what I see a lot of because we specialize in this like uh, this triangle of hormones, digestion and intuitive eating. We see a lot of times people get uh, these extreme protocols from holistic naturopath, functional medicine doctors. And I love holistic approaches. Like, I promise I'm not like hating on anything. However, a lot of times they are told a laundry list of foods not to consume is more than just go low FODMAP or go gluten free. A lot of times they're told a list of, I would dare say, like 20, 30 plus foods to not consume. And that's what starts to develop the disordered eating because they develop anxiety and stress and worry about these foods and never told that it's okay to start eating those foods again or never told that like hey this should only be a temporary solution so yes i can definitely see how protocols would develop that and it makes sense given those circumstances and i think if even if someone doesn't want to specialize in eating disorders we just all need to better understand how disordered eating manifests because it can so quickly happen from just a diet or just a protocol hi i'm cindy crawford
3: and i'm the founder of meaningful beauty
0: Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: All that sitting and swiping, our backs hurt, our eyeballs sting. That's our bodies adapting to our technology. But we can do something about it. We saw amazing effects. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. There's no turning back for me. Make 2024 the year you put your health before your inbox. And take the Body Electric Challenge. Listen to Body Electric from NPR on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. We have more insightful conversations between myself, Paul Muldoon, and Paul McCartney about his life and career. It was
2: 20 years ago today We had a big bear of a man,
0: who's was called Mal Evans, who's was on roadie, and uh, mm-hmm. I was coming
1: back on the plane and he said, will you pass the salt and Pepper? And I misheard him. <laughs> I said, what? Sergeant Pepper? This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: When you work with people who need dietary, I'm going to say rules in place for their health and the long term, is it better to be broad or specific when telling them what to eat or not eat? So, for example, cutting out entire food groups versus foods. And I'm genuinely asking, like, which could be less detrimental to their relationship to food, whether you're specific or broad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, (sighs) that's a hard question to
0: answer, you're kind of having me over here think, I think it could just depend on the person. I think sometimes maybe broad, let's say just like gluten as an example would be helpful because there's still so many foods that they can consume. As I was describing earlier, like you should still be able to eat carbohydrates. You're just going to go for ones that are free of gluten. This idea of avoiding specific foods, like I've seen things like avoiding green beans and spinach and tomatoes and bell peppers. And usually that's coming from the guise of food sensitivity testing, which is not something I personally agree with. You know, I get it. And I, I guess you could say a low FODMAP diet is pretty specific. There's a very specific foods that have FODMAPs in them. And like I mentioned, that is a evidence-based practice, but it was never meant to be used for a long-term. So I think I, it could be used for a short-term solution. I just always like to emphasize that doesn't mean you have to avoid all of those FODMAPs for the rest of your life either though. Generally speaking, once someone has done the personalization of it and they are, you know, doing this to manage their IBS symptoms, usually it's just things like garlic and onions, maybe beans, can be a pretty big one too that they just need to eat less of overall. And they don't even have to. It's not like someone like with celiac and gluten free, it's not like they have to avoid that food forever or like completely eliminate it. Oftentimes it's just a reduction of it, if that makes sense.
2: And would you say that cooking techniques could alter how the food is digested in the body?
0: Oh, yeah. I feel like cooking just always helps, right? So like, for example, apples are a really big FODMAP. You can cook the apples. I love making like baked apples with cinnamon and maple syrup. Yum, so delicious. Like that's a way to make it easier to digest. Or onions, garlic, that'd be another great example. So let's say you have IBS and you love guacamole. Maybe you want to make yours without garlic and onions in it as an example. Or if you do love garlic and onions, maybe caramelizing the onions because that can help help to reduce the overall FODMAP load, something like that.
2: That's where I think the knowledge of nutrition and cooking practices can be really helpful and working with a dietitian, so that, you know, when you get the long list of foods that you can't eat, you then go to somebody who could be covered by your insurance, by the way, and they help you sort through the weeds of what you can and can actually eat. And then even within the parameters of what you know doesn't work for you, is there also a way that this food doesn't need to be out of your life forever? And that's obviously going to depend on the person, but I think it's something that we kind of forget and may not even have knowledge of actually is a better word yeah
0: Yeah. And I I mean, my personal philosophy is, is I always try to liberalize the diet as much as possible. We believe in an all foods fit mentality, but again, understanding that sometimes medical conditions require otherwise, but I'm not about telling someone like, okay, well you have these medical conditions, but let's also eliminate dairy and gluten because they're inflammatory and you shouldn't eat them. I think that's just a completely different conversation. This whole idea of like things being inflammatory is not the same as saying like follow temporarily a low FODMAP diet for your IBS.
4: So let's say a client does come to you and well, you are working with them and they want to figure out how food makes them feel. Sometimes it's hard to recognize, mm-hmm. okay, is this a period cramp? Am I ovulating? Like I went through fertility stuff. So I became very in tune with uh, ovulation cramps. I always thought, because I w- that's not my period. I always thought the discomfort I was feeling in my stomach was a food related issue. But once I became in tune with what my body was doing on my menstrual cycle level, I realized, Oh my goodness, I'm not uncomfortable right now because of something I ate. I'm uncomfortable because I'm ovulating right now. And I get really bad cramps during that time. And I could start to see all the signs happening. So I say all that just to say that once we become aware of how our body is functioning and what's causing it, but I feel like even still without that knowledge, there's times where I don't know why I feel puffy, or I don't know why my stomach is uncomfortable, or is it journaling? How do you recommend to people to keep track of how it's making them feel and then make decisions based on that?
0: Yeah, I love this question. I do have to say, I think what's so interesting to me is that we always go for food as like the reason we're experiencing something. I always, when a client's like, oh, I'm having a ton of symptoms this week. My first question to them is not, what is your stress and anxiety levels like this week? Because that is so underestimated for the way it gives us so many symptoms. It can cause the irritability, the fatigue, the uh, lack of concentration, the puffiness, the bloating. It can cause all of that. So my personal philosophy is always focusing on that first and foremost, because it is vastly underestimated for how much like literal symptoms it can cause in your physical body to experience stress and anxiety. And then from there, like, yeah, is something going off your period? Are you on your period? Are you ovulating this week? Do you potentially have PMS symptoms? And then, you know, food for me kind of falls at the, like the very bottom. And yes, again, it can be those things. It could be a particular food. I think over time as an intuitive eater, you can start to discover what feels best in your physical body. And I like to be absolute with that. So, like, as an example, sometimes I eat a cheeseburger and I know it's not going to make me feel 100%, but I enjoy the experience when I eat it and move on with my life. But there is this idea you can definitely eat foods that make you thrive and feel your best. But I do have to say, I think it's not always the food that's making us have symptoms. Does that make sense? Like, I think we need to like not always go for food as like, the first thing we ask.
4: For me, I'm so glad you said that. And we covered that in our, you know, the first part of Outway in one of the first four episodes, kind of that the stress and anxiety even that we give ourselves over food could be causing all the other symptoms or yeah have we been sleeping or what else is going on so thank you for bringing that up and knowing that yeah there's so many underlying factors but yeah you're right we always make food the culprit water plays a role have are we exercising too much and causing certain stresses in our body and do we need to take a break and
2: relax we've talked about so you know all those factors are things that we quote unquote do the exercise the food Food, the sleep I mean obviously sleep disturbances could be without our cause but the the important part here is that there are factors not within your control that cause puffiness bloat. you know you talked about your menstruation even if you're not you know female or ovulating or whatever it is the body is a chemistry project on its own and I think I believe that this is so ingrained into us that like we control our physical state because that calories in versus calories out mentality was just like drilled into us for so long like it's simple. Just do this, do this, burn more, eat less, you know, and all your problems are solved that we think we're in so control of our bodies that we feel like failures when we're not. And for me, that's where my mind goes when I think, how did we get here? Because listen, I, I believe that food can be medicine. I believe that food is fuel, but it's not just about the food, right? I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think we can
0: use food. Like, as you said, we can use food as medicine. We can use food as fuel. But this idea that that food is the end-all all, or the cause of literal every issue or condition we experience, it's just so unfair to me. And, you know, similar to like this calories in, calories out, I think what we've also recently have had happened in this health and wellness world is like, you have a symptom, it's this food's fault. You have this symptom, it's this food's fault. And I think that's where we are even more so with food. And I think it still comes down to like thinness and desire to like lose weight. And like, it almost always comes down like that's how people perceive health. But I also think it's very much this idea of like you have bloating, eliminate gluten. You have acne, don't eat dairy. You have something going on with this health condition. Don't eat sugar. Sugar's the worst. It's just interesting to me. Uh, and I understand I have like this non-diet intuitive eating perspective. But I'm always just like huh, that's so interesting. That's the first thing we go to, first thing.
2: So true. And oftentimes it adds more stress, which then exacerbates the original problem that you were trying (laughs) to solve. So (laughs) that's kind of the framework where it's like, okay, we need to step away from this vicious cycle that we keep throwing ourselves back into it And we can, I think that that's the important thing. We can step back and there is a way to have a healthy relationship to food with a dietary protocol and live way more happily and free.
4: Right, absolutely. If someone listening right now, I just wanna speak to someone that's like, oh, well, shoot, I do have things going on working with someone like Victoria that knows how to navigate you through something like this will be helpful because I am speaking from a place where I don't have symptoms you may have. Lisa may not. We, we don't have that. But if you're left after listening to this episode and feeling like lost of what you're supposed to do, if you have the means to speak with an expert and work with them just to help you get started and really evaluate what do you have going on? Do you think you really need help? I feel like, one of the worst things I ever did to myself was doing one of those blood tests where it told me what I can and cannot eat. And I was advised to do that by not a certified nutritionist, but someone that I was working with for a dietary plan. So I did that. And to this day, I have to remind myself, Amy, it's okay, you can have an avocado, or it's okay, you can have an almond, or it's okay, you can eat blueberries, because that test told me that I could not that those were my severe foods. And I could not have them. But I mean I tricked myself into thinking I needed that test done cuz I I wanted to be thinner. So I would just encourage you if you're wanting to seek out help and do any sort of elimination thing to figure out what's going on or you're wanting to get this blood test that'll tell you what foods you're sensitive to. Ask yourself why you're doing it cuz at the end of the day I was doing it cuz I wanted to be smaller and it wrecked me.
2: And even if that's not your goal and it really is health and I think Victoria and I would right. kind of say the same thing here. We I I feel like this could be a whole other episode on its own. But first of all, those tests are just profit centers. Like that's for me, that's absolutely. okay. Yeah, that That's number one. But number two is the fact that they have incredibly high rates of false positives. So you're being told not to eat avocados or almonds, Amy, but that's not necessarily true. So your sensitivity could be wrong. And then you've just eliminated all these foods, even if it's not for thinness. It's because you just want to feel better in your body. You want to know what's going on inside that you can't figure out. And that is why elimination diets with an expert, a registered dietitian, hopefully somebody that, you know, is conscious of disorder eating can be a better fit to help you figure that out although not necessarily more expensive but definitely more time consuming to kind of weed out food by food is really the way to go and that's why it remains you know the gold standard of figuring out what to do. Yeah I
0: appreciate you mentioning that Lisa and Amy thank you so much for sharing your story. The truth is that they're just not evidence-based and again I love holistic practices I'm quite a wellness junkie myself but the truth is is if we don't have evidence-based practice we cannot say that these things for sure help. And Amy, I've heard countless stories like yours where they had this test. They were told not to eat X, Y, and Z food, like you mentioned, avocado and almonds. And then what happens is they develop fear around the specific foods for the rest of their life. And I'm going to imagine that's not how the tests were originally meant to be used, but it seems to be how they're using now. And we all have IgD in our blood, like that tells us that we're used to a food. So I think I personally just have a lot of, you know, obviously I have a different perspective on this test. It sounds like Lisa, you do too. Um, but they're just not the end all be all to anything and definitely would work with the expert. But I have so much compassion if you have symptoms and if you're even trying to navigate intuitive eating. I had digestive issues for a solid decade of my life and I get how concerning they can be and perplexing. and it makes you feel as if like, I know for me, my quality of life was so impacted. There were times when I couldn't leave the house. And that's why I love doing IBS work with intuitive eating. Cause I remember what it was like. It was terrible, but I do have to say, I think a lot of the answers that are out there right now, I am concerned that they're just developing orthorexia even more for most people.
4: Awesome. Well, Victoria, we appreciate you coming on to talk about this with us and again if people want to find you on instagram you're at victoria myers underscore and the myers is m-y-e-r-s and i'm pretty sure victoria is going to be on an upcoming episode that you'll get to hear where we're going to be talking about how to get your period back if that's something that you have lost so we'll be seeing you again soon victoria thank you for having me
3: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. ba 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 All that sitting and swiping, our backs hurt, our eyeballs sting. That's our bodies adapting to our technology. But we can do something about it. We saw amazing effects. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. There's no turning back for me. Make 2024 the year you put your health before your inbox. And take the Body Electric Challenge. Listen to Body Electric from NPR on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look. And I'm obsessed with looking for it. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. Each week, I have a short conversation with someone who inspires me or teaches me something about life, leadership, and other curious things. I hope you'll join me on the journey. Listen to a bit of optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.